Uh, good day, Will. It's good. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, of course you can. Good to be back with you. Uh, and so this is talk number two, and we're thinking today about uh, what the Bible has to say about racism. So let's pray, and then we'll get down to it. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word, your word which guides us and uh, instructs us on uh, the way that you require that we live it tells us everything we need to know for life and godliness so we pray that you would help us to tune in carefully this afternoon to what you have to say to us about this um, pretty complicated topic Uh, so help me to deal sensibly and carefully with your word and i pray that you would help us all to commit ourselves to obey uh, all that you reveal to us today in jesus name amen well, look, uh, when, when uh, it was suggested that we might think about a few hot topics, I came up with a little list, and one of them's racism uh, and what the Bible has to say. Now, I don't know if anybody here has been the victim of racism. So I was thinking as, as I was driving here, maybe it's not that hot a topic, um, except that it is. Um, now, we live in... Look, I'm looking around, and, and you know, Mafra's not a lot different from Druin, Uh we're probably a little bit further down the multicultural road than you are, but not far. There seems to be an imag- sort of a, a magical glass wall at Pakenham, uh, beyond which not too many uh, different ethnicities have ventured. So we're, we're pretty much, you know, white and blue-eyed in in our area. Um, and so when you're in, when you're part of the dominant sort of racial group. You don't really stand out, and yet there are people that have. So a friend of mine, uh, when I started my teaching career up in Nil, I became, or Jenny and I together, became good friends with a Chinese teacher. He was the only Chinese in Nil. Um, and, and I remember one day he was really quite upset because some of the kids in the school were calling him names. So he was a new teacher, and when you're a new teacher in town, uh, you can be pretty vulnerable to the sort of things that the kids want to do to you because they're working out with you know, they're trying to test you to see how long you're going to stay, you know. Um, and um, and Michael was pretty upset about that. And the irony of it was that he's more Australian than I am. They picked on me for different reasons, uh, but but his family came across it around about the time of the gold rush. So he's a fourth-generation Australian-born Chinese, an ABC, as they call him. It's just that ethnically he looks Chinese, whereas I don't, you know. Um, so it was an issue for him. But I've, I've been there on public transport while people have been um, just abused for, for, for looking different. And it's really unpleasant. I was on the train a few years ago. Um, I'd put my car in for service. I'd gone in to see Sally in the hospital while the car was being serviced, got the Lilydale line train out, and uh, I heard this fella got on behind me, and I could tell by the way he was addressing everybody as he was coming down, he was one of them. Um, I had my back to him, but, hey, gun, hey, gun, hey, gun, he's saying, and, and I thought he's an attention seeker, and you could just tell. Anyway, there was an Indian girl sitting in the little cubicle right opposite me, uh, it was an afternoon train, so the place wasn't crowded. So he came down and he patted me on the back. Here you going, mate? Here you going? He said something to her. She didn't respond. So he sits down and keeps talking to the whole carriage as they were all interested. And then he looked at me and he said, what's happened to the good old Aussie sense of humour, mate? Where's it gone? Look at this girl here. Can't get a smile out of her. And so after that, he just started keeping on with comments like that. And I thought, I don't think you're funny either. But he kept banging on about the good old Aussie sense of humour and eventually she said, that's racist, and then did he give it to her. 
Anyway, I said, hang on, mate. And the bloke opposite me said, no, just leave him alone. Let, he'll shut up. Uh, you don't, don't give him any attention. I thought, yeah, that's probably about right. But I thought in my mind, if, any, if he makes a move, I'm going to have to stand up. And so eventually he got off and I went over to her and I said, look, I, I'm sorry about that. I hope you don't think we're all like that. But um, I said, I wouldn't have let him come near you. But it was horrible. And it was for nothing else than that she looked different. Right? Now, is that how we want it? Now, there are some people who would say, what I'm about to say today, I shouldn't really be saying because I'm not qualified to. Because we're living in a world now which is dividing uh, and becoming more and more divided each day. So have you heard of the... Uh, um, I've had the, word, had the name on my lips. Uh, there's, there's this term for the phenomenon that we're living through. Uh, and it has to do where people are divided according to what class they fit into, right? Uh, so it's, it's identity politics, Not right? Race culture. Well, race culture. Yeah, uh, but, uh, yeah. Identity politics means that you are defined by which groups you fit into, right? So I'm a white heterosexual male Christian, which means I'm amongst the worst of the worst, apparently. There's a few others of us here, right? But there are people who would say you can't speak about this because you haven't been a victim of it, so therefore you're not qualified. But I still believe in truth, and I still believe that there are some things that are true and that we can stand on, and this is an issue on which the Bible is not silent. Uh, and, and so what I'd like to do today is think about what the Bible says about race, uh, and I'd also, I also want to think about some areas in which Christians have let the team down very badly. Um, I think I said a couple of weeks ago that my dad always used to say, if you're in a debate with someone, you're on safe ground if you talk about Jesus and the Bible because they're both reliable. But if you talk about church history, you're in trouble. But if someone wants to bang on about how crook Christians have been over the centuries, unfortunately, we have to agree. Right? And so this is an area on which the, the history of the church, unfortunately, is fairly spotty. But if you haven't noticed that uh, we are living in times where the issue of race and identity are uh, uh, sort of front and centre. And so in recent years, we've seen the advent of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, in particular, it came to the surface after the, uh, the, the, the death of uh, George Floyd in America um, under the knee of an American police officer. Uh, and that, that brought out a great deal of anger um, and it caused uh, you know, marches and riots and all sorts of things. And of course there was an Australian equivalent for it. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement has begun in Australia and the particular angle that they've taken over here is to uh, protest about the number of Aboriginal men in particular that die uh, while in police custody or in prison. Um, that's expressed itself in many ways, including our sporting codes of... Um, got their players to take a knee, as they say, in solidarity. Now, this is an interesting thing, very interesting, because I wonder how many people have actually read all that Black Lives Matter stands for. Uh, and yet, I wonder if you could get a game for Collingwood, Richmond or any of the other AFL clubs if you said, I don't want to take a knee. If you've re Read their website. It's, you don't have to look very far before you realise that their agenda is much broader than just a fair go for people of colour. Um, and so if you can't buy in with all of it, would you get a gig on an AFL team? Don't know. Um, very recently, uh, Parkdale Secondary College invited a, uh, 
a social worker from the Kingston Shire to come and address their kids and she asked all of the white male Christian boys in year 11 to stand up while she told them off for being at the pinnacle of offensiveness um, in in the, the hierarchy of just how bad you can be. And so it got a fair bit of media attention. It made it onto the front page of the papers. Um, and, of course, the you know the schoolers had to apologise because quite a, quite a few of the boys were uh, upset. Look, I used to be a teacher, and there's, there's some kids who, who take these those sorts of slights very seriously. Now, there's some sensitive souls out there. There's some that would you know, be water off a duck's back, but there were some who were really quite upset by it. Uh, but it's an interesting thing that boys who may never have done anything wrong... We were always told when we were in teacher training, don't punish the whole class for the offensiveness. So if you've got one kid being naughty, you don't keep the whole class in for lunchtime detention. And yet here's this whole group of boys. She didn't know who they were, and yet they were made to stand up and apologise just for being who they were. That's interesting. Um, Anyway, what what are we talking about? Uh, On the subject of race, according to the Shorter Oxford Dictionary, um, the Shorter Oxford Dictionary always puts things at great length, so I've abbreviated it, Um, but race means a group of persons connected by a common descent or origin. Um, Technically, I think people would call me Caucasian, uh, although that's a very broad term as well, but, you know, my mum was born in England, my dad's family came from England, but dad's mother was Scottish, so we're sort of British Isles-type people. Uh, but racism is a belief or ideology that all members of each racial group possess characteristics or abilities specific to that race, especially to distinguish it as being either superior or inferior to another racial group or racial group. So... The theory is that different races have different characteristics. Right now, I've got most of this stuff on there, so don't feel you have to scribble too hard. But if you haven't noticed that, yeah, different races look different, but not only do they look different, they're built differently. Uh, So there are physiological differences between one race and another, and those physiological differences play themselves out sometimes in being better at something and maybe worse at something. So there are different characteristics that go with it. Uh, Now, if that becomes, if those racial differences become the point at which someone is cruel or unkind or unfairly discriminates against them, then that is racism. So let's, before we go any further, I don't want to sort of muck around too long, I want to nail my flag to the mast, just in case anybody mishears something I say and say, Steve is a racist or something like that, right? Uh, I want to see what the Bible has to say, and there's a lot more, but I just want to narrow it down to a few points. I've got all of the texts there, but the the Bible references I'll put up on the screen, but I think this is a, a reasonable summary of what the Bible has to say. The first thing that we want to say about humanity is found in Genesis chapter 1. So right at the beginning of the book, Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That there is the foundation of human dignity. And we'll come back to that a bit later on. Uh, But if you are in a discussion with someone about matters to do with the essence of what it means to be a human, uh, I, I really do believe a good way of handling the opportunity to talk about our faith is to ask questions. Uh, people, people come at us with accusations and things 
it's a good idea simply to ask questions. Find out how much they know, but also find out the things that really matter to them. But find out whether their beliefs actually rest on very strong grounds, right? So if a person says, oh, I'm an atheist, but I believe, then you could say, well, where do you get that from? Now, this is the basis of our understanding of why humans are special objects. We, uh, we matter because we're created in God's image. Now, that's a term which uh, scholars have spent a lot of time trying to work out. What does it actually mean? It means, in a sense, that we share attributes with God in a way that the animal creation doesn't. But I've found a very helpful um, explanation for this uh, in, in this respect. What does it mean? Well, here's a statue of the Assyrian governor, Hadad Yissi. Um, he was uh, the ruler of the Assyrian Empire, Empire in the 8th to 9th centuries. It's um, housed now in the Damascus Museum. It was discovered in Syria in 1979. But the inscription at the base of the statue, which is original, says this is in the image and likeness of the king. Now, that's exactly the language that Moses uses in Genesis chapter 1. So what does it mean? Well, the emperor of... Assyria ruled a vast empire and he couldn't be physically present right throughout it and yet he wanted everybody in the empire to remember that this was his territory and so he had copies of this statue placed at key points around the place they were images of the king that's what humans are we're image bearers of the world's true ruler so we're in God's territory and we're meant to look after God's territory we're little statues that represent the ruler of this world and we rule the world as his representatives. That's the way the Bible puts it. Now we need to spend much more time on that if we were to look at Genesis chapter 1 to really understand that. But that's who humans are. We were created to rule the world under God's authority. Uh, you'd, I'll leave you to work out if we've done that very well. But to be an image bearer means to be a living representative of God. That's the foundation of, of human identity it's the foundation of human dignity. Now Exodus 22 verse 21 says that you shall, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. A sojourner means a person who's, who doesn't belong. Another way of saying that would be an alien, someone from outside your group. Right? They're instructed at the very beginning of Israel's national life they were to look after people that didn't belong if they joined themselves to their community and the reason for that is because they were once sojourners themselves so in other words you should know what it's like that's how you used to be we're going to move through this pretty quickly um we'll have a time for a question in a moment right Zechariah 9 verse 10 so set it in the law now it's backed up in the prophets uh, the prophet Zechariah on behalf of Yahweh the Lord of hosts render true judgment show kindness and mercy to one another do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. In other words, look out for people, especially the vulnerable. So if a person, does, if they look as though they don't belong, watch out for them because someone else will be giving them grief. So God's people need to look after people who are vulnerable. Um, Proverbs 22 verse 2. Uh, the rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. If you were to read that in the NIV, it says uh, the rich and poor have this in common, right? Now, when it says rich and poor, what it means is everyone. That's just one way of saying everybody that fits between the pole of rich and poor. So you'll find yourself somewhere along that continuum and one thing you've got in common with everyone else on that line is you were made by God. So that, that's a proverbial way of saying what's in uh, Genesis chapter 1, right? 
So whether you've got lots or a little, you're made by God. Does that mean you matter to God? Of course it does. Does that mean other people matter to God? Yes, indeed. Matthew 25, um, we won't read all the words, but you can look this up. But Jesus says the basis on which we'll be judged is the way we've looked after others. We won't be saved by what we look after others, but we're saved to look after others. And so one of the, key, the things that he points out, when he comes in his glory as the Son of Man, one of the criteria says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And then the righteous are going to say, we don't remember doing that. He says, when you did it to one of the least of these, you did it for me. So Jesus says, look after the stranger, look after the alien, the, stro- the sojourner. He's echoing what was said in Exodus and Zechariah. On the day of uh, Pentecost, I think today's Pentecost Sunday. They said that down at Munion. Do we have Pentecost Sunday in Mafra? Was it? <laughs> you, you did? Oh, good stuff. It was mentioned. Good stuff. Well, don't know if anything was said at Warrigal. I might have to chip them about that. So, uh, anyway, but on, on Pentecost Sunday, uh, when when the, the the apostles gifted with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues that they'd never spoken in before, uh, when that went around. Um, People from all sorts of different places heard and understood. And scholars believe that what's happening symbolically there is that the curse of Babel, where God frustrated the languages, is now being undone. Because people are hearing the saving message of Jesus in language they can understand. Uh, But the fact is there were both Jews and proselytes there. A proselyte is a person who has embraced Judaism without being ethnically a Jew. Uh, So there were were people from outside the family of God uh, in Jerusalem on that day. Uh, In Acts 10, there's a real turning point. We're thinking we might preach through the book of Acts soon. I think that's right, isn't it? We're certainly meditating on it. Um, And it's a great book to preach on. Uh, But there's a real turning point in the, the history of Christianity when Peter, who's lived all of his life as a good Jew, is invited to go to the home of a Roman centurion and eat with him. Now, that's something that Jews just don't do. Uh, They were distinct all throughout the Roman Empire. They would not sit and eat with a Gentile. And yet Peter was told by the Holy Spirit, you've got to. And uh, and so Peter realised. And he says, um, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Anything we've said so far to suggest that God thinks racism is a good idea. To treat people badly on the basis of where they come from or what they look like. Anything so far. God shows no partiality. Well, James, the apostle, says that if that's how God treats you, then you should treat each other that way. So in James 2, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing and you know the rest. In other words, don't give a special seat to someone just because they're well off. Uh, but show no partiality. You can extend that beyond just wealth. Um, the, the Christian community is, you know, the, the modern buzzword is inclusive. And, and Christian communities should have been doing that all along. Um, and, and, and I hope that that's something we'll work on. Um, Galatians 3 is a classic text on any of this. Uh, because of what Jesus has done for us in dying on the cross, shedding his blood for us, calling us to be his own, um, the Apostle Paul writes, as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now they are all of the ancient divisions into which 
people could be divided. So that's identity politics and all the identities sort of... It's not that they, they lose their identity, it's just that there's, there's this fundamental ground of equality between them. So men and women, equal before God. Jews and Greeks, equal before God. Um, slave and free, equal before God. Just because you own a slave doesn't mean you're a better person than that slave. Um, the fundamental ground of equality is uh, our sinfulness and our forgiveness in Christ. And then Revelation 7, uh, the Apostle John, given a vision of uh, the throne room of heaven, he looks and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So that's a vision of the future. Uh, years, years ago, um, with my band, we were asked to go to uh, Mooney Ponds Baptist Church to help them celebrate their centenary. So we played at church in the morning and we were taken out in the afternoon. We, were, um, we went and had lunch with a couple. He came from El Salvador and she was from Cuba and they'd met in Melbourne and married. Um, but come tea time, they put on a church dinner for us and there were people, I would say, from every continent. There were Asians, there were Africans, there were South Americans, there were Middle Easterners, there were Italians, Greeks, Yugoslavs, English people. Um, well, I left in Antarctica, I don't remember any. But uh, uh, there were people there from all over and they were all, they'd all brought different food and everyone was talking to each other and I thought, where else does this happen? Uh, and it, to me it was a vision of heaven. Um, I hope they're still going that well. But that, that's what we're told. Uh, people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages are going to be included in the eternal banquet. Right, that's a bit of a biblical overview. We've got any, any thoughts or reflections or questions, hesitations, doubts, fears or controversies? Uh, what, what colour do you think Jesus was? <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, what colour was Jesus? Yeah. Um, well, we're not told. And I think that's part of the genius of the Bible. Uh, there's no physical description of Jesus. Uh, the closest we come, as far as I can tell, is the Mount of Transfiguration, where he was in clothes too white to, to look at, and then we're given a vision of the glorified Jesus in Revelation. But we're not told, and I think that's brilliant. Although we are told a little bit. Um, Isaiah 53 says he had no beauty that we should desire him. Now, I take that to be a prophecy of Jesus. And if that's, if that's able to be understood literally, that means that Jesus wasn't knockout good-looking. Right, yeah. But I, I, some years ago, some British crowd put together a a, um, a composite of what they thought Jesus would have looked like based on what they know about the appearance of first-century Jews, and I think they said he would have been about five foot two, sort of. I'm not going to go into the rest of it. About five foot two, and just, but he was a Jew. I met a man a few years ago who was emphatic. He, he was very anti-Jewish. Um, in fact, he left the church on, on the strength of it. Uh, but I said to him, Jesus was a Jew. He said, no, he was a Hebrew. And I thought, oh, <laughs> you can't win with people like that, friends, I'm sorry. You just can't. Uh, I said, is this a big enough dude? You're going to leave the church? He said, yes. So he did. Um, and he just caused trouble where he went next. Um, 
So we don't know what Jesus looked like. But even you just saying, oh, but he was a Jew. Well, he was. He, Jesus was a Jew. There's no getting around that. And that's the other thing. Um, people will bang on about um, you know, Christianity being white man's religion. No, it's not. It's an Asian religion. Palestine's at the western end of Asia. It's not European. Uh, it was missionaries that took the gospel to Europe. They just took root there, that's all. But, but um, Christianity is not a white person's religion. Um, it's for everybody. The woman at the well, the first Jesus, you are a Jew. Hang on, Harry. I, I can't get the hearing aids to work. Something's gone wrong. So. The woman at the well, the first yeah. Jesus, you yeah. are a Jew. Yeah, I am. That's right. That, that's, that's a very early, that was a very controversial thing Jesus did there. Yeah. A male speaking to a Samaritan woman. The Jews, you know, didn't go near him. Yep, Rebecca. Just a quick comment, going right back to when you're talking about people's experience of racism in this church. I'm thinking, even though it is a fairly white church, not everyone who's white is Anglo. Not everyone who's white speaks English as their first language. Yeah. So there could be people in our church that can speak for themselves, but who've experienced some yeah. sort of mistreatment or prejudice against them because of the way they sound or because they're yeah, still belong to a different group. Even if It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting issue. But, um, anyway, uh, yeah, Jared, make it loud. Uh, yeah, so um, when when one of uh, Linda's colleagues at work uh, said uh, uh, found out my last name, Abdu, they said to her, "Boy, oh, you must really love him." They <laughs> <laughs> said what? Boy, oh, you must really love him. Yeah. Same on the name Abdu. Yeah. Um, one, look, one thing about humans is they have a, a lot of people have a great capacity for meanness and so if it's not race it'll be something else that they'll pick on you for um, so humans are just good at being unkind really and it's, if it's not one thing it'll be another um, anyway the problem briefly stated racial groups possess divining characteristics right so if we can agree with that B, those characteristics may be used to define that race as superior or inferior. Um, so racial groups can define themselves in those sort of ways. Now, this, I found this, um, this is a representative sampling of different people that it could be labelled Caucasian, right? So in America they call white people Caucasians. It's not actually a very accurate 
I'm, I'm not an anthropologist, I'm just re- telling you what I've read. But um, there's all sorts of different ways of being Caucasian. You can be British, Italian, Arab and so on. They're all technically Caucasian. Um, there's all sorts of different ways of being African. There's short Africans, there's long, tall, skinny Africans. They're all African, uh, but there's just different ways of being human. That's what it comes down to. But there are, def- there are characteristics that separate one race from another. So if you pay any attention to athletic events, you'll notice uh, that in the 100 metres, it's very, very rare to see a, a white person doing well in the 100 metres at the Olympics. Uh, there were times when they have, and every now and again one sneaks through, but by and large, the 100 metres field is dominated by people of African descent. Right? There's no getting around that. That's just how it is. Right? If you watch the marathon, it's almost always won by different kind of black Africans. It's just how it is. But in contrast, Africans don't seem to do well in swimming. That always seems to be non-Africans, right? Now, I can't explain it. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's how it is. Watch the Olympics and see if I'm wrong, right? So there, there are different characteristics. I mean, if you look at the heavyweight boxing, not, not many white guys do that well at it, right? Um, racial prejudice is prejudging a person's worth on the basis of characteristics over which they have no control. So there's a lot of characteristics about each of us that we can't control. This is one of the challenges I used to have as a teacher. Kids who were feeling left out because they were too this or too that. And they'd sometimes own up how they were feeling. Only sometimes. Mainly they kept it to themselves. But there's nothing you can do if you're the only girl in year nine who's six foot tall. What what can you do? She can walk around like this if she likes, but it's not going to change anything. But she stands out and so therefore kids are rude. And sometimes teachers are stupid in the kind of things they say too. Um, People are good at being mean and dumb. Um, The World Council of Churches had a conference in Uppsala, Sweden in 1968 and they initiated what they called the Programme to Combat Racism. Uh, And and this was over a number of years, but it... um, was quite a famous initiative at the time and they came out with a five point statement number one of which was white racism in its many forms is by far the most dangerous element in the modern racial conflict so there you are the world council of churches says white racism in other words the tendency of white people to misjudge or prejudge people of other races or other colors is the number one problem and we've seen that in the black lives matter movement um, so it, was, it wasn't just the George Floyd situation that called it on. It actually began in 2013. Um, but stop killing us, they say. Uh, so Black Lives Matter, this comes from their website. Uh, it's a global network foundation, a global organisation in the United States, the United Kingdom and Canada, whose mission is to eradicate white supremacy and building local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. By combating and countering the acts of violence, creating space for black imagination and innovation and centering black joy, we are winning immediate improvements in our lives. Um, so that's, that's their goal, that's their mission. Um, if someone was to say to them, don't all lives matter, uh, if they were being kind, they might agree, but they'd say, well, your life's been mattering for a lot longer than we have, so we're putting yours on the side. It's time to focus on... Black Lives Matter. There's this um, 
this idea of preferment, of positive discrimination. Have you come across that, positive discrimination? Uh, where people are identified as having it too good for too long, so their privileges have to be shelved while other people get a turn at the pie. So years ago when I was a teacher at Warrigal High School, we had a visit from Joan Kerner, who had just become the Deputy Premier of the state, and so she gave a talk to the entire assembly and it finished this way. And this is, you know, it's as close as... It, it was almost, it's almost verbatim. It impressed itself on my memory to the point. Uh, she said, girls, my favourite song's Helen Reddy's I Am Woman. It says, I am strong, I am invincible, I can do anything. And she rabbited on about that for a bit. Then she said, boys, you've always had the world at your feet, now it's time to move over and give the girls a turn. That's what she said, right? That's positive discrimination. In other words, boys have had it too good for too long, it's time to change the game. Now, Black Lives Matter is saying the same thing. White people have had it too good for too long, it's time to change the game. Um, well, I just wonder if it's that simple. Uh, these are some statistics which are not hard to find. Uh, it's not secret knowledge or anything like that, but in 2019, the US police fatally shot nine unarmed blacks. But they, fa they, shot 19 fa they fatally shot 19 unarmed whites. Which publicity got the most air? Yeah, yeah. Well, see, one of the problems is... That, well, I don't know, there's a lot of problems, and I'm not an expert on it, but there, there's just too many guns in America. So I, I could be... You know, but... but and, and maybe they just shoot too quickly. Remember the Aussie woman that got shot for calling out the cops at four in the morning? Um, you know, um, so... Anyway, but in 2018... There were 7,407 black homicide victims. Now, I haven't got the numbers from 2019, but if the two years are roughly comparable, nine deaths at the hand of the police is a smidgen of, of 7,407 total homicides of black people. Now, I'm not making light of any of it, because any murder is bad, right? Because all lives matter to God. Uh, but that's 0.1% of all African-American homicide victims are at the hands of police. It's a tiny fraction. In fact, a police officer is 18.5 times more likely to be killed by a black male than an unarmed black male is to be killed by a, police a white police officer. So you could wonder, you know, which way is this running? Um, do, do all lives matter? Um, now, in the Australian context... The Australian Black Lives Matter movement said, you know, we've got to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. What they didn't tell you is that most Aboriginal deaths in custody are from things other than brutality. There's illness, suicide, um, just the sorts of things that anybody dies of. But Anthony Dillon is an Aboriginal academic. Um, he has analysed research from the, uh, the Deaths in Custody Royal Commission and he's found that Aboriginal people were slightly less likely to die in prison or police custody than non-Aboriginal people. Now, he has not made himself popular by bringing that to light because that's not what some people want to hear. In 2018 to 19, the Australian Institute of Criminology found that Indigenous prisoners died at the rate of 0.13 per 100 inmates, whereas white or non-Indigenous inmates died at a rate of 0.23. So, in other words... Out of every 100 inmates, there's a higher ratio of non-Indigenous deaths. 
they're just facts. It's not racist or it's just that's what it is. Um, Alice Springs Deputy Mayor Jacinda Price, again an Indigenous lady, um, she has written articles about this sort of thing. She said between 1989 and 2012 there were 951 Indigenous deaths by homicide. Of those, 765 were killed by Indigenous perpetrators. It's not white on black violence that's leading to um, to Indigenous people dying. 67% of those were classified as domestic homicides. Now, again, that's not racist. That's just how it is. Um, there's other sort of inconvenient things. The, 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 the traffic is not all one way with white and black. So there was the dreadful Rwanda genocide in 1994. Now, the genesis of that was in probably in the, the policies of the colonial Belgian... You know, uh, Rwanda was set up as a Belgian colony and the Belgians ruled through the Hutu, through the Tutsi. The Tutsis were taller, slimmer and paler, but they were the ethnic minority. And so when the Belgians left, the Hutu, which were the dominant, shorter, darker, more numerous population... Uh, thought it was payback time, I suppose. And so there was that dreadful genocide in 1994. Um, and it's estimated that between 500,000 and a million people died in a matter of months. That was 20% of the total population of the country. Now, that, in, in, you can maybe lay the blame at colonialism, but the fact is, in the end, it was, it was black Africans killing each other. And it was horrific. I have a friend who served there with the United Nations. And to this day, he won't talk about it. Uh, he came and spoke to a group of, my, uh, of students and we talk about it to that level, but, um, you know, they asked him some questions and there were some he just couldn't answer, uh, the things that he saw, because the United Nations was there under no-fire policy. They could only, fire, only shoot if they were shot at. And so the rebels knew exactly which buttons to press and they pressed them. It was horrific. Um, but a death toll of a million people, maybe, is, you know... But then there's another well-known um, racist policy and that's uh, from the Indian world the, the caste system now this is an outgrowth of Hindu religion where they, they think of this multi-headed god of Brahman uh, um, Brahma and, and they say the different layers on the hierarchy of value can be attributed to different parts of Brahma's anatomy so the Brahmins are at the top of the tree, they equate to his head. But down at the bottom is the Dalits, the outcasts, what used to be called the untouchables. And that's an entire class of people that cannot advance in Indian society by virtue of where they're born, into India. And this is not white on black we're talking about here, this is internal in India. And it's, a, it's an outgrowth of their, their religion. So these people can do nothing more than the most menial and dirty and nasty of jobs. Uh, and so there's a Dalit family. They are excluded. Even though technically this policy has gone by the wayside, in practice it hasn't. And so these people are excluded and there's the evidence of it. Dalit lives matter. The untouchables are still untouchable. Um, so it's not all one-way traffic, as the World, World Council of Churches said. But there are some, we have some embarrassments in our, our world. Uh, what Tench wrote a, a book. Um, I found a copy of it online for $14,000. There you go, you can buy your own. Um, but Watkin Tench was an early observer of life in, um, in this southern continent. 
and he wrote a, a book called An Account of Settlement at Port Jackson. And in commenting on the Indigenous population, he said this, if Australian Aborigines be considered as a nation whose general advancement and acquisitions are to be weighed, they certainly rank very low, even in the scale of savages. They may perhaps dispute the right of precedency with the Hottentots or the shivering tribes who inhabit the shores of Magellan. In other words, he's saying that there is a hierarchy of nations, hierarchy of races. There's the top all the way to the bottom. And he's saying up until now we thought the Hottentots were about as low as you could go, but now we're wondering. Right? Now, does that sound like anything to anybody here? That sounds a lot like evolution. So ideas have consequences, and the idea that we've all ascended from a more basic way of, you know, uh, ancestral origin could lend itself to that, and in fact it did in Nazi Germany. So Hitler was a fan of evolution, and and the Nazi racial theory was behind a lot of what went on over there. So... uh, Eric Koch was the uh, the right commissioner in Ukraine when they took that over and uh, he instructed his people that this is how they had to see themselves. We are a master race, which must remember that the lowliest German worker is racially and biologically a thousand times more valuable than the population here. The Germans had it as policy that they would teach the the conquered people enough German so that they could read the road signs to stay out of the way of their cars. That was how they thought about the people that they were conquering. The, the final solution where they were trying to exterminate Jews became necessary because Hitler wanted to conquer Eastern Europe. He wanted the Ukraine for its wheat belt. And the further east he went, the more Jews he found because that's where they, that's where they were living. And the final solution was... An att- he hated the Jews anyway, but it became necessary because the further east he went, uh, the more of them he uncovered. But here's a a Nazi chart. This is a racial chart. Right up the top, you've got the German people. And way down the bottom, you've got Juden. They're the bottom of the ladder. They were considered subhuman. Now, in English, this is what the chart looks like. So at the top of the tree, you've got the Aryan Nordic uh, people. I would find myself in there, except for that Jewish bit. Uh, You know, I used to be blonde-haired and blue-eyed, so I'd sort of fit the bill. Uh, but then you work your way down the pyramid. Next layer down is the non-Aryan Nordic race, so they were sort of okay. Uh, but then you get down to the Slavic people, and they're sort of not that okay. Uh, way down, way down below, they're sort of on the level of the Africans, right? So this, this, they taught that this was the result of science. They said science has led us to, to conclude that this is how the races are divided. But way down below. But beneath even the Slavs was the Jews. They were regarded as inhuman, subhuman, right? And so therefore they had no rights and a person could do whatever they liked to them. Now, science without morality is a dangerous thing. We live in a world where people have made a god out of science, uh, but science without morality, very dangerous thing. Well, it's not just the world that's coughed up some bad stuff. There's been some Christian heresies. We can't help but uh, confess this. Uh, South African apartheid. Uh, I don't know if it was Christians that dreamed it up, but certainly the uh, Dutch Reformed Church of South Africa was a strong supporter of it. And in fact, if, if you were a theologian or a pastor in the Dutch Reformed tradition and you stood against apartheid, no matter how soundly you reasoned it out from the Bible, you would lose your job. So it was a very costly thing to stand out against it. Um, one of their foremost poets and, uh, and thinkers, he's been immortalised on a 
South African stamp was a man who went by the nickname Totius, um, J.D. Detroit. And he said that in Genesis 1, God's created a beautiful unity in which he separated light and darkness and so on. And so this idea of separating is a characteristic of God's creation. And so light and dark, dry land from waters, living creatures according to their kind. So he concluded that God created things not as a mixed mass, but as separated and segregated. And he said that is God's plan for the races. They should be segregated. Now that's a theological conclusion. I think it rests on very bad understanding of the text, but that's what he came up with. And so the Dutch Reformed Church Synod of 1949 concurred and it, it found the existence of the various races and nations was not only allowed by God, but was specifically willed and ordained by him. So they're saying there's a theological justification for the policy of apartheid that separates the people. Um, they say that the Tower of Babel is a sign of that that, that, that God had to frustrate their languages and send them all over the place, and that should never be tampered with. Deuteronomy 32.8 was another one that uh, was held to justify this. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the Son of God. So they said people should not go beyond the borders that God himself has fixed. Uh, there's a similar verse in Acts 17, which again I think they've done great harm to uh, but when Paul's preaching in uh, the city of Athens on the Areopagus um, he tells the Greek philosophers that he's speaking to that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place and so again the apartheid theologian said that the boundaries that God's fixed humans shouldn't contravene uh, they did have to confess that God had made everyone from one origin, but they said after that it was all divided. Right? So, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 um, is a passage which speaks about people in the church who are currently married to an unbeliever or people who are slaves or whatever, but they take this little strand and they make something of it. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So they said... There are some people who are called to be separate and, and they use that as justification for it. Now, regrettably, the Bible has been used to justify the European slave trade, the, the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, those pictures I've got there are diagrams of how the captured Africans were made to sleep on the slave vessels that were bound for the New World. Uh, they slept in chains, they couldn't even roll over. Um, they weren't able to relieve themselves. It was, it was, they, um, the slave traders factored in a certain number that would die en route. That was, you know, just an investment. Uh, th there's no getting away from that. We've got some dreadful skeletons in our in our cupboard. Uh, the biblical justification for slavery rested on an interpretation of the story of Noah and his sons. You know the story of Noah. He planted a vineyard, drank some of the wine and got drunk and his third son Ham came in and it says in Genesis 9 that he uncovered his father's nakedness. Now nothing's made of it. We're not told exactly what that means except we can read later on the Pentateuch to see your parents' nakedness is an offence. You just do not... It's an offensive matter. Well, anyway, Shem and Japheth, his other two sons, 
honoured their father by taking in a covering while he was still drunk and exposed and they walked in backwards so that they wouldn't risk seeing their dad's nakedness and they laid the cloth over him. Now, from that comes... Google it if you don't believe me, but the curse of Ham. I did a, uh, a funeral some years ago uh, where we went to the, um, the local Freemasons Lodge for the, uh, the supper and, and they had a sign up there about a particular lodge that they were inviting people to join but they had this little warning that because it was something about the son of Ham. I thought, man, it's coming here too. Uh, but, but this was used as a justification because they said Ham was the parent of all the black races. Now, the incredible thing about the story is that Ham's not put under the curse. It's his son, Canaan. The scholars still don't really know why. So it's one of those debatable things that we'll only properly be able to deal with when we get to doing a series on Genesis. But the fact is that was held as theological justification because Canaan was told he would be a servant of servants. And so therefore they said, right, if uh, Ham's the father of all the black races, that's all they're good for good for slaves and that was used as a theological justification when people talk about slavery these days usually what they have in mind is the american slave trade where i mean that that's why africans are in america at all uh, because they were they're the descendants of people that were forcibly removed and taken there as slaves and though their ancestors that were taken there were rounded up captured put on the boats taken across there when they they just became property and they could be sold, and they were sold at auction. They had virtually no rights, but they were sold, and people made lots and lots of money out of this. And, and of course, uh, they were living tools. That's, that's what a slave was, to do work that the, uh, the master found in, in congenial. Um, but David Goldberg, Goldenberg, writing in a book called The Curse of Ham, he says the biblical story has been the single greatest justification for black slavery for more than a thousand years. Yet in it, there is no reference to blacks at all. But just about everyone, especially in the antebellum American South, understood that in this story, God meant to curse black Africans with eternal slavery. Antebellum means before the war. That means before the Civil War that was fought to end slavery. Um, so the curse of Ham... Um, do you remember when Kevin Rudd was on Q&A about the same-sex marriage issue? He was taken on by a pastor. Uh, and the pastor's... Because Kevin Rudd had been a vocal opponent of same-sex marriage during his time as Labor leader. Um, early on, it was only his insistence that the Labor... the ALP conference didn't run with a, a policy endorsing same-sex marriage. Interestingly enough, people like Penny Wong uh, were of the same mind back in those days. Uh, but then it all changed, I guess, along with public opinion. But this pastor from Queensland appeared on Q&A uh, and Kevin Rudd had announced that he changed his mind on it. And the pastor said, how can someone calling himself a Christian not believe the words of Jesus in the Bible? A man shall leave his father and mother and be married. Uh, so he's quoting there from Matthew 19. And Kevin Rudd's answer was, if I was going to have that view, the Bible also says that slavery is a natural condition. Now, that got the loudest applause of the night. Uh, either he's being deceptive or he doesn't know his Bible as well as he pretends because the Bible does not say that. But in the world that we're living in, you may well meet people that think he was right. And so it's best to, that we know that he wasn't. 
In fact, that came from the Greek philosopher Aristotle. So Aristotle, in his book Politics, book one, he says, from the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. Slavery is natural. The natural slave benefits by subjection to a master. Slavery did not begin with the Atlantic slave trade. It's been a feature of human life for millennia. Any group of people that could get away with taking and keeping slaves did so. It's been practised on every continent. Um, but What's that? It, it still is, yeah, no question. Yeah. Um, but it, it's not a phenomenon... Like, Christians have attempted to justify it, I think, wrongly, but it's not something that only owes its origin to a perverted understanding of the Bible. It's been something that has been a feature. And so Aristotle said it's fine because there's some people whose birth means they deserve nothing more. There are some people who are slaves by birth. I've given you a fuller version of the quote in the notes there. Um, so the question is, does the Bible condone slavery? Because Kevin Rudd noted two passages. He, he, I, don't, I can't remember if he referred to them by their verse, but he, was clearly, he clearly had Ephesians 6 and also Colossians 3 in mind. So the Apostle Paul writes very similarly in both, but the longer version is in Ephesians, bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good willist to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. There it is again, no partiality. So Paul's writing to a church, assuming that some of the people there are slaves and some are slave owners. And the point that Kevin Rudd makes is he doesn't tell slave owners, give up your slaves. And so there is no verse in the New Testament that says, right, slavery's got to come to an end. We've got to agree with that. But the thing is, the entire economy of that part of the world depended on slavery. And if Christianity had announced itself in those terms, uh, Christians would have been persecuted even harder than they were. But it would also have meant that many of the people that had come to Christ would now be out of work. But the thing that Christianity did was it set forth a trajectory that made slavery impossible once enough people got the message. Because once you realise that you will one day give an account to a God for whom there's no partiality, you feel a lot less inclined to own people as property. But we'll get more to that in a moment. Um, Kevin Rudd went on and said on that basis, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, we should all have fought for the Confederacy in the US Civil War. Now that's a cheap shot, uh, but that's the sort of stuff that gets a clap on Q&A. Um, does the Bible condone slavery? We'll have a look at this, Deuteronomy 24. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there, therefore I command you to do this. Right, so they're to look after the vulnerable, including the sojourner, those who don't belong there. First Timothy chapter 1. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. So there's a list of people that, 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 that are outside the pale of godliness. For murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. That's another way of saying slave traders. Does the Bible support slavery? 
It condemns people who make their living buying and selling slaves. Now, if you were to read in Revelation 18.13, there's a list in Revelation 18 of all of the various products that Babylon, which is a symbol for the world's commerce, all of the, the world's products, there's 28 of them, so that's four groups of the divine number seven, and one of those is people who traffic in human souls. Slaves, it says. The Bible condemns the practice of selling slaves. Uh, Kevin Rudd was wrong. First uh, Corinthians 7, this is a verse that was uh, quoted by the um, apartheid people as, as being a justification for apartheid. Uh, Paul says, only let each person lead, this, lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. But then he goes on, he finishes this passage, were you a bondservant when you were called? Did not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So in other words, if you can get out of being a slave, do so. There was a practice where you could earn enough money to buy yourself out of it. But some people... Slavery in those days was different from the kind that was practised in America. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, a person could sell themselves as a slave if they'd fallen on hard times. And if their master was so pleasant that they wanted to, they could pledge themselves to that person for life. There was a bit of a process. They had to nail their earlobe to the door of his house. And that was a sign, I want to, I want to be yours. Right. But you would only do that to a master who treated you well. And so it was not unknown for slave owners to treat their, their servants well, uh, although there was plenty that didn't. But the little book of... Have you ever read Philemon? We should preach that one. That's a, it's, it's good fun. Like you can get through it in a 15 minutes to read it. Uh, but that's a very powerful uh, little little book because Paul is asking Philemon, a man who owes his spiritual life to Paul's preaching, he's asking him to take a runaway slave back. So Onesimus has made his way all the way from Colossae, where Philemon lives, to Rome where Paul's in prison. And he says to... Paul says to Philemon, when Onesimus goes back with this letter, he says, spare him. And he says, I'm making an appeal from my heart to yours and he says and he's virtually saying you know you owe your life to me and so he says this bloke has become my heart now Philemon could have had Onesimus executed because that's what could happen to a runaway slave Paul says don't execute him because he's now your brother now a book that contains a letter like Philemon when more and more people believe it slavery can't last so Kevin Rudd was wrong. Um, uh, and so if anybody wants to come at that, then tell them they need to read more. Rodney Stark's a sociologist, uh, particularly interested in the sociology of religion. He's written this book called For the Glory of God. This is what he has to say about slavery. It's almost universal amongst societies able to afford it. He says in the Greek world, in the Roman world, and in, in the Enlightenment uh, which people would say now is like the pinnacle of Western learning, there were philosophers that justified slavery. Uh, some were meant for nothing better, they say. Um, and there were people who said that the, 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 the advancement of our culture depends on having slaves because the thinkers need time to think and write and read. They need other people to do the hard yakka. So that can only be the case if we've got a willing pool, well, a, a pool of slaves. Um, 
slavery was an indigenous African institution well before Europeans start, uh, came and started buying them. Uh, African sl- uh, tribes enslaved each other. Uh, that was that's what you did with people you conquered in war. Um, I spent some time in the Solomon Islands up there. The raiding parties would go out. They would tend to eat the men. I'm not joking, they were cannibals. They ate the men and they brought the women and children home to be slaves. Um, In the Robiana area of New Georgia in the Solomon Islands, that's how it went. They were the most fearsome cannibals in the Western Pacific. They ate the men because they thought that they would imbibe their spirit. But they took the, they captured the women and children who took them home. Slavery has been happening at all points of the compass for a very long time. Islamic and European slave buyers depended on African suppliers. That's not something you'll hear very often, but that's a fact. So David Livingstone, the, um, the, the very famous Scottish missionary, when he went to Africa, he discovered that it was Africans who were buying and selling slaves. And so there's a, a, an illustration of... Africans guarding Africans as they take them to the place where they'll sell them to uh, the other slave traders who'll take them further on. Uh, slavery was ended, this is what Stark says, slavery was ended in the West by Christians ablaze with moral fervour, which activated and sustained movements comprised of people willing to sacrifice personal advantage in acting for the good of others because of a belief that subjugation of another of God's creatures was a sin odious before God and therefore to be shunned by his people. Now, if you do get into a debate about racial things and they bring up slavery, ask which of their heroes played their part in putting an end to it. Because it was Christians, by and large, in England who did so. And also in America, the abolitionists. Not all, but most. Uh, But where were the secular do-gooders back in those days? Because secular philosophers were coming up with philosophies justifying the practice of slavery, not against it. So as we finish, the basis of human dignity is this. All creature, all people are created in God's image. I'd be asking, any, if you get into a discussion, say, well, on what do you base the idea that people are equal, that people are, are important? Where do you get it from? Because you don't learn it from evolution. All evolution teaches you survival of the fittest. You won't learn this in the bush. You learn it because it's been revealed to us. Um, I want to tell you a little story as we close. Now, the reason I play a mandolin that looks like this is because of a man called Bill Monroe, who was the father of bluegrass, right? Now, on July the 9th of 1923, from the Gibson factory in Milwaukee, United States, two instruments came out. You know when they're made? Because there's a label on the inside that says who signed off on it and on what date it left the factory. And then it's got the serial number. If you can get an instrument signed by Lloyd Law... From 1923, it will cost you a ton of money. The one on the left was found under a bed of a man who died. It hadn't been played in years, but it was in perfect condition. It was... um, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Bill Monroe bought his for $150 in a barber shop somewhere in the south of America in 1943 for $150, right? Uh, This one here, found under a bed, $160,000 was what they were selling it for in 2009, Right? That's a lot of money. Uh, have a look at the condition of Bill Monroe's mandolin at the top right. That was after it was restored. 
because he was a touring musician for all of his days and one night some very nasty person jumped onto his tour bus, grabbed some of his instruments and smashed them to bits with a poker that you would use in the, in the fire and it was just splinters. So he took it to the Gibson company and asked them for them to put it back together but that's what the mandolin looked like before they'd started the reconstruction. It was worthless. And yet when it was sold... In 2001, it went, 2001, it went for $1,125,000. Now look at the condition of the two. They both came out of the factory on exactly the same day. They're both signed by Lloyd Law. And yet one is worth a million and one's only worth 160000 <laughs> What's the difference? Value is conferred. Now what are you worth? What's anyone worth? If they boiled you down, what would they get? Right? Now, I'm guessing here that not many of us will have books written about us. And beyond the next generation, how long will we even be remembered? Where does our value come from? It comes from our association. We're made by God. That mandolin is worth a lot because it's Bill Munro's. You're worth a lot because you're God's. You belong to God. He made you. That's where your value comes from. You will not find this in the jungle. You won't learn this from a study of the primates evolving into sentient beings. You will not find it. Our value is not intrinsic. Our value is conferred. But the ultimate statement of our value is the cross. Uh, We're not saved because we're valuable, but God loved us. And so Galatians 3 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. The cross is the great leveller. We're all sinners, we all need forgiveness, and we all come the same way. So before the cross there's equality. But Revelation 7 says that one day, because of the results of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension and return, uh, there will be a multi-ethnic crowd worshipping God for eternity. Uh, so I don't know how that fits with the idea of apartheid. <laughs> I just can't see it. But racism should have no place in a person that understands the gospel. Should it? Um, Martin Luther King once said the most divided hour in America was 11am on a Sunday morning because you had black churches and you had white churches how will it be in heaven so there we go what do you think of that but it's a hot topic at the moment but yeah Nathan Um, make them loud because they hear (laughs) it Uh, we've talked a lot about this morning about like racism in Europe and America and history and that sort of thing. Yeah. What can we do about racism more close to home? Well, what can we do about racism closer to home? Well, I think we need to model being welcoming to everyone as much as we're able. Um, look. Different people are different. Like I went to a church in England a couple of years ago and all of the black Africans sat on that side and all the white people sat on that side. And and it's complicated because the white people were trying to reach out to the Africans and they didn't really want to be reached out to in some way. So it's got to come both ways. 
but when we understand the gospel, we understand that reconciliation with God is only through Christ and his reconciliation is equally available and equally necessary for people no matter where they come from. So we, we'd want people to, to come to see that. But it's not simple because we've all of us got a lot to unlearn. But, you know, taking opportunity to make friends with people and, and um, showing care and concern for them, like some of those verses, caring for the sojourner and those sorts of things, I think that's where it begins. So it's, it's one of those things as you have opportunity. I don't think going on street marches achieves much at all, to be honest. Uh, I went on one once and I thought I'd never bother with this again. Um, because there's just too many fringe elements that hijack it and they're the only ones that the news shows. Um, so it's a cheap thing to do to put on a wristband and go to a street march. It's harder to actually make it work with your neighbour. So, that, uh, yeah. But, but it is a question of just remembering that, that we're all made in God's image no matter where we come from or what we look like. Yeah. Yeah, Steve. Just interesting you say that uh, when I was uh, a bit younger, I was got in, involved with uh, um, the protest at um, the New Parliament House in 1988 um, by Aboriginal people, and so uh, and uh, I actually got to meet some of the local Aboriginal people who were sort of discussing about yes. their involvement, and uh, so I was asking them what what, what can we as Christian youth do to support Aboriginal people in sort of having that. And uh, the, the lady who uh, was the Canberra organiser of the local people in Canberra, she said, well, probably the best thing you can do is uh, is invite our young people along to your youth groups. And it, and it never really occurred to me that there were Aboriginal people in Canberra. But of course there are. It's just that uh, they, they get overlooked because they're, they're kind of like a different subculture. So sometimes actually asking and inviting and, and, and is, is, is the best way to counter racism. The actual projects got, got hijacked <laughs> and ended up in a lot of shouts. But uh, yeah. which wasn't what they intended. There are churches in multi-ethnic areas in Melbourne that run English as a second language courses. Uh, St Jude's in Carlton, I know, has been doing that. And they also um, have a sort of a social night where they get... Um, they're, they're mainly students who've come to university to study and, and they play board games. And then have a Bible... They have a meal, play board games, so it gives people a chance to talk, and then they have a Bible study. And it, um, So it's a way of building friendship and helping them with English, but then... Um, they take the evangelistic opportunity as well. So it's just a matter of looking out for, for ways of doing that. Um, I, I know Nil, where we used to live, there's been a huge... Well, not about huge, but there's been quite a substantial influx of people, Karen people from Burma. And I know that the Uniting Church up there has been trying to reach out to them, uh, with some success, I believe. You know, just kindness, friendship, those sorts of things, making them feel welcome. Yep, Rebecca. Scenario you described with the, the black people not wanting to be rich yep. and not seeing each other. And I think the reality is sometimes people have had that experience. Yeah. Their experience is real, it is not the same as their experience. And so sometimes it does take a lot of trust. So you can't just no. walk up with those people
Yeah. Yeah, that's good. It works the other way too because there's a lot of Sudanese community in Saad and mm. I know the Anglican church has been getting together with them and they cooking days and things like that. But then you hear of all down in the city where the Sudanese are going in and you know, pinching stuff in houses and house invasions and they get that bad reputation mm. and it sort of scars all the Sudanese. Yeah. Whereas... There's just some beautiful Sudanese people. But we, looking on the outside, get that, oh, the Sudanese. But if you've met some of the Sudanese people who, like I have, inside, it's just lovely. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's it's a matter of taking people as you find them, really. But that's the same, I mean... You know, I've taught plenty of Caucasians that I wouldn't want to live next door to, so, you know, so... I mean... there's, there's nice ones and nasty ones wherever you look, you know. Yeah, Rebecca. Yeah, it's kind of better and worse at the same time now. 
and maybe the media and social media too might have some to do with that. That's all beyond me, social media. Thank you. Yeah, I was just remembering when we had uh, Kim Simons was organising the Simon Seekers to come up and have a weekend with us, and their biggest their biggest concern for the weekend was not the food or where they would stay and everything was just whether people would be kind to them yeah. would accept, basically accept them and treat them kindly and I know the first year we did it um, people were very nervous, you could feel it when they came into the room and, and as they got to know people they relaxed and more but the next year word got around and they were much more relaxed and the year after that they were much more relaxed so you got to sort of build that goodwill and yeah. it, it takes a while yeah. Probably does. Uh, I mean, these are all situations that the early church had to confront. If you think about Acts chapter 6, where the Greek widows thought they were being left out, the Jewish widows were getting all the good stuff. And so the, the church had to figure out how they were going to deal with this. And so they did. And then Luke says straight away afterwards, and the, and the, the gospel advanced. So they must have made a success of it. But it's going to require give and take on both sides. And, but in the end, the gospel's the great level. Uh, it's the gospel of reconciliation. Back. Um, what's... I'm just kind of thinking about, like, we were talking about the boys at the school, like, being told to stand up and stuff yeah. as white Christians. What about how our response to reverse racism yeah. as it's kind of being caused... Well, that's cool. That's scary. <laughs> the response to reverse racism. Uh, see, that's, that's the difficult thing. Like, if you don't agree with all the Black Lives Matter, you say, we're not going to take a meeting. Some people have done that. And, and the trouble, this is one of the complex things about our world now. It's going to be very hard to do that and not look like a bigot. Because that's the way you really portray uh, Here's one of my theories. The truth is always more complex to explain than the lie. And so Kevin Rudd can get on the telly and say, the Bible says uh, slavery is a natural condition. People give him a round of applause. The answer to that takes a lot longer to give. Uh, So what do you do about reverse racism? How do you say, well, look, look, you know, I I really, I love you, but I'm not going to take a knee. You know, how do you do that uh, without looking like a bigot? Uh, and that, that's part of the genius of this modern movement. They've, they've captured the language and, and, and they're making quite a success of it. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> jared has got an idea, though. He'll know. Yeah, it's just, uh, there's a thing called TikTok. They're just like a minute, bite-sized piece of information. And it's short, it's punchy... Uh, one of the effects of uh, social media is to divide the world into many groups um, and it does that through their um, yeah, it's sort of at least profile so people get the information that suits the way they serve yeah. uh, and so it creates uh, people's like that um, so they, this is a little bite sized bits of information people don't so 
And so I think part of the change is reasoning with people. Well, actually, if you read it further down the line, I've, you know, I've done it with the Bible, people say da da da. Um, the way we talk, to, I think it's in Ephesians, but it talks about how to treat wives and how they to submit. Mm. And they had this guy go, rah. I thought, let's just read it a little bit further. And it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So they're not getting the whole conversation. You mentioned mm. to, to it, but it's taking people from the bite side to the full doctrine. Let's listen to the conversation. Let's, have, let's be uh, uh, willing enough to hear the conversation, see the conversation through. Mm. And so it'd be more reasonable. This um, book been written by this lady called Rebecca. Uh, her name will come to me in halfway home. Uh, but she was um, an academic and a lesbian in a committed lesbian relationship, and she developed a friendship with a pastor and his wife, and they had her around for meals. She was an atheist and a lesbian, an academic. And, yeah, Butterfield, yeah, Rosaria Butterfield, that's right. I'm thinking of Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, but she was won over by love. And so she's now a Christian and a writer and a mother, a wife and a mother of a couple of kids and so on. But in, in the end, it was because this bloke would actually talk to her about books and ideas without um, condemning her. And, and so she, they developed a friendship. And I, that seems to me to be a fairly fruitful way of going. Um, I, I, you know, we need to constantly remind ourselves that Peter in the great ap- apologetic text says um, in your heart set apart Christ as Lord and we all of us think yeah, we've done that uh, being ready to give a reason for the hope that you have but do so with gentleness and respect now gentleness and respect has not always characterised Christianity's engagement with the world um, sometimes Christian comes across high and mighty and arrogant uh, and not listening, like Jared said. But sometimes people just want to be heard. Uh, I've heard, I heard someone say this a few years ago, you've probably heard it too, but uh, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And, and Christians haven't always been good at uh, gentleness and respect. So let, let's give that a try and see how far that takes us. Worth remembering as well that a lot of the time the complex truths and opinions come both ways, and um, yeah, it takes a lot of time and patience. Yeah, yeah. The kids at school must have known I was a Christian, I guess, because you know, I was a teacher. Because sometimes, not every day, not even every term, but every now and again, someone would come to me and say, "You're religious, aren't you, Mr. Messer?" I'd say, "Yeah, that's right." And so we'd have a talk. And uh, there was this one day, a kid says, "You're religious, aren't you, Mr. Messer?" That's right. And he asked me this question, and I was halfway through the first sentence of the answer, and he turned and walked off. I said, "Hey, you just asked me a question." He said, "Yeah, I'm not that interested." Uh, and regrettably, that's true for a lot of people they're just not that interested so but every now and again you'll find someone who is I wonder too Steve whether prayer might have something to do with it too I find that when I don't pray not many of these opportunities present but if I pray suddenly all these coincidences start happening Hmm. and I think it's almost like if you're prepared to pray the Lord um, 
Yeah. 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 I reckon that's very likely to be true. Yeah. I was listening to a Christian on a podcast a few weeks ago, and he said he begins every day by praying that God will uh, lead him to the good work that he's prepared in advance for him to do today. Right. So I've been trying to remember to pray that. Yeah. So. I think we need to commit ourselves to praying for revival. I really do. Um, Because that's the only hope for the West, is if God revives the West. Uh, God's doing extraordinary things in other parts of the world, but the West is stagnant and declining, it seems. Uh, But I think we need to commit ourselves to praying for revival. few books written on that subject the the idea of um, enjoying the fruit of the gospel without liking the tree Uh, if you want to read a really good book on that topic is uh, one that came out last year um, by a historian called Tom Holland called Dominion and uh, I've I've, you know John Anderson's referred to that a few times but it really is a very good book and he starts off in his book by talking about how people used to kill each other so he talks about how the Persians used to execute criminals, how the Greeks and how the Romans did it. And when you read it, you go, yuck. And the fact that we go, yuck, is because Christianity changed the way people think about that. But he points out that the ancient Greeks... Now, we think the Greeks, you know, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, all these great philosophers, but um, someone that they didn't take a shine to, they used to put them in a hollowed-out log, cover them with honey and leave them to the ants. Now, why is it that we shudder? Because they thought that it was a perfectly okay way of executing people. The Romans just crucified people. The Persians invented crucifixion. The Romans refined it. But we, we go, that's, that's awful. That's because Christianity has taken hold and, and shown us that people are actually creations of dignity. Well, if you don't think someone's a creation of dignity, you treat them as you like. Uh, and, and so we are living on the capital of the gospel and the question is how long will that last I might talk a little bit about that next week because that's this a very interesting anthropologist who did some serious work that um, shows that how we regard sex is an indicator of the ongoing healthfulness of any society and if his observation is correct we were on borrowed time. So, um, and he wrote in the 1930s. Is there a book, Sue, that you would 
recommend in terms of um, looking at slavery and how, you know, why? I mean, it, to me, it's a big question that I've often had lobbed at me that why didn't Jesus just declare slavery is wrong and... and uh, well, there's a lot of things he didn't condemn. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things that, that that will be changed in the new creation that Jesus didn't address specifically. Uh, Jesus never said anything about rape. Yet we've worked out that that's not a good idea. There is, is there a book that will actually sort of deal with uh, Look, Rebecca McLaughlin's book, 12 Questions Confronting Christianity, is, is a pretty good start on a lot of these sorts of issues. Uh, it's like I said, slavery was just how... Um, it's, it's estimated that about one-third of the population of Rome were slaves. Well, if they all got organised and decided to get angry, that's going to make life very difficult in Rome. Now, if Christianity had said, slaves, disobey your masters, what would have happened to the gospel? The most powerful... The, the, the Roman army, it took until the 17th century before there was an armed force of comparable size to the Roman army. I mean, Jesus says, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So in other words, use your brains as you go about all this. But like I say, the principles of human dignity that you find in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, made slavery impossible when the gospel took hold. Because you can't read a book like Philemon and say, well, I don't care. Paul's making outrageous claims on that man. He's saying... I want you to forego your rights for the sake of the gospel. And he must have, because otherwise we wouldn't have the book. So, you know, the, the, some of the answers are in the Bible. Which, yeah, but um, look, Re- Rebecca McLaughlin's 12 Questions Confronting Christianity, I'm not sure, well, Rodney Stark's written on the influence of, of um, people like Wilberforce and so on, but his is a denser book and it covers a lot more territory than just Slavery. Um, yeah. How are we going? Is that enough? Nathan, could you pray for us? Will you finish up? Would that be alright? I'll put you on the spot. Thanks. Alright. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, yeah, we thank you for uh, all we've heard um, this morning and this afternoon about how. Um, in, in Christ we are one, uh, and that, uh, yeah, that there is um, hope and unity to be found in the gospel, um, that uh, Christ, uh, in Christ, uh, even, uh, we, uh, we find <coughs> um, that we are all equal before the cross. Uh, as the, the hymn says, uh, we find our our worth and our unworthiness before the cross of Jesus. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, as we uh, go out from here, Lord, that we would be able to, uh, yeah, keep uh, keep holding that forth, um, that uh, the gospel would shape the way that we uh, interact, particularly with uh, people from other cultures and ethnic backgrounds. Um, and particularly that the gospel would shape the conversations we have, uh, whether they're about slavery or uh, race or any other topic, Lord, that uh, your, your word would shine through and your gospel would bring uh, hope and life.
Amén. Amén.